Welcome to the Make You Famous Podcast, where host Jeffrey Goldsmith talks with guests about fame and how to achieve it. I'm your host, Jeffrey Goldsmith. Check out the book at makeyoufamous.co. Okay, so we have Mark Mullen here with us today, and he has been working in democracy since 1993 at the National Democratic Institute, including seven years as the director of the Institute in the Republic of Georgia. And now he's the uh, uh, chair of uh, Transparency International in the Republic of Georgia and the chairman of the board of uh, Geo Capital, uh, which is based in Tbilisi. Um, welcome, Mark. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Did I get anything wrong in that introduction to you? <clears throat> well, I'm actually no longer the chairman of the board of Transparency International in Georgia. I founded it, but I have not been the chair for about two years when I got on the international board of Transparency International. Um, but I'm uh, still friends with the crew there and talk to them quite a bit. Okay. So tell tell us about, you know, your when I, I met you at a mutual friend's uh, uh, book swap, and you began to tell me about how you became famous in the Republic of Georgia, which, is, which I found very interesting. So how, how did that happen? How did that all work itself out? What were you doing there at the time? Well, to try to um, not have too long of a backswing, I – um, graduated okay. with a, a degree in, in, in history from Wesleyan University with not much of an idea what to do with it and ended up traveling around. I lived in Japan for a while and then ended up getting a job distributing food during a drought in Malawi in, in East Africa. I mean, it wasn't really a job. I sort of volunteered for 80 bucks a month. But then they had um, a referendum there on whether to become a multi-party democracy and it was very exciting, and I observed that and sort of put myself into the the, the middle of that. And then I found uh, the National Democratic Institute, or, or NDI, um, when I, I, I came back and got ready for a lengthy job search, and they were opening an office in Malawi. Didn't know anyone who'd ever been there. And uh, so they, they hired me, and I moved back there um, and did a – or voter and civic education program there. Um, well, that's, or their, that's, their not, that's fascinating because it's, it, it's almost like a random beginning, right? You, you were in Malawi and you were traveling around. You, you started distributing, helping distribute food. Then you came back and you looked for a job and you had this credential from Malawi, which allowed you to get a job at the uh, at the Democratic the sorry the Institute the direct NDI. NDI. Yes, exactly. It was it was totally random. I mean, and even how I got the job in Malawi to distribute food was kind of somebody I talked to, and uh, you know, it was it was all completely random. Now, my first year in Malawi, I was really just hired because I'd been there, and I kind of did the you know rented the office and dealt with you know getting a telephone line, which at that time was quite difficult, and you know all that all the sort of logistical stuff. And uh, and then, um, but I'd been there for a while, and so I ended up um, having influence in sort of how we designed the the whole program there. They'd never had elections and all this all this stuff. And then and then I moved after a year there. I went directly from there to I was promoted to having a sort of substantive role in Palestine um, fairly soon after the Oslo Agreement was signed to do what was supposed to be a voter education program, but ended up, I was supposed to be there for three months. It ended up being almost three years because the interim status negotiations took so long. And so there I designed a civic program and, uh, and, and set it up throughout the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza and East Jerusalem. Um, then I was, yeah, and it was at a very interesting time. I mean, looking back, everyone says, oh, that was such an optimistic time. I mean, didn't really feel like it then because the closure was on and it was it was pretty tough. But I guess compared to now, probably so. But anyway, so then I at that point I thought, well, okay, I you know I probably ought to get a life and you know I don't know do something real. I thought maybe I should get a master's degree because I never really studied any of the stuff that I was doing, and I mm -hmm. thought development studies seemed like a good idea. Graduate school in the UK was much cheaper, and so I applied to 
graduate school in the UK, got in, was ready to go, and my employer said, don't, uh, you know, no, you should go, you've done a good job, and stuff like that, and I said, okay, well, I'll, you know, I want more money, and I will only go to these four countries, and I will only go if I'm the head of the office, and I only want to do civic work, I don't want to deal with political parties or, you know, whatever else, or parliaments. Um, and I kind of, it was sort of like I, I was leaving anyway. I'd already paid my deposit in graduate school, and I, I didn't think that they would take me up on the offer. And the, pl- the four places I said I would go were Ghana, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, or Georgia. And mm. they were just places where we had stuff going on and seemed like interesting places I'd heard things about. And uh, and so they offered me the job to go to uh, to Georgia in the in the spring of of nineteen. 19- 97. And really, the only thing I'd heard about the place was that they, that if you went to the former Soviet Union, that was a place to go and that they had good food. That was the only thing yeah, I knew you, about the place. You know, coincidentally, my aunt and uncle spent a lot of time there. She, My, my aunt, uh, Sharon, set up the um, uh, accreditation program for the um, Certified Public Accountants of the Republic of Georgia. Uh, uh, what do you know? She, huh. she, does, she does certification programs. And internationally, and so it's just odd. I have a bunch of carpets from the Republic of Georgia. Just coincidence, total coincidence. But they love oh, it there. Great. So. Oh, yeah. great! I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, it's a great place. Everyone who goes there, I've never known anyone who didn't go who didn't have a fantastic time. I love it. I mean, I didn't know that then because mm-hmm. so few, I, so few people had ever been there. You know, I didn't know anybody had ever been there. I just heard, I, I just heard that sort of on the grapevine from people mm-hmm. um, about the place. But then you spent many years there, correct? You spent six, seven years? So so what happened was I went, and at that time in 1997, there were very few uh, foreigners in Georgia. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at that that point, I'd I'd been with NDI for, you know, I guess about uh, almost five years, and and, uh, I don't know, it sort of felt like I was not in the vanguard, but... As it turns out, I mean, when I when I got there, and again, you know, you looking at it from from now, you know, it seemed like kind of a wild time. But when I moved there, I was, I, you know, it was pretty much what I was expecting. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, somewhat dingy. I, you know, I got there in spring and it was raining. It's kind of dingy. Nothing had been repaired since around, you know, nineteen eighty nine, um, and uh, you know, it just seemed kind of. It seemed kind of kind of bleak, but there had been an NDI office there. Yeah. Well, oftentimes people underestimate um, themselves. They think that what they're doing is just oh whatever. But you know, again, it's random because of what can ensue from good hard work. So <clears throat> it's not surprising what I'm hearing because of the randomity of it all. Yeah, I mean, I I would like to say it was it was hard work, and I there was certainly a lot of that. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the first element of it that, of of how I ended up becoming um, very well known there was first of all there had been an office there before, and there were uh, smart people doing doing good work uh, there before. Um, mm-hmm. But it was the only organization there. I mean, there were. You know, I, I essentially knew all of the sort of Westerners there, and there were, mm-hmm. I don't know, a, a handful. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were not any other organizations. And so I got there, and we had access to the the very highest level of the, of the political leadership there. The other element was that it's a very small country. I mean, at that time, mm-hmm. maybe four, four and a half million people, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Also, in terms of Georgian national identity, it very much sees itself as a a naturally Western place that was sort of hobbled by their 70 years under the Soviets, and in fact, their 200 years um, under under the Russian Empire in one mm-hmm. form or another, and that they had been a great center of learning and a a sort of the eastern edge of the Western world, um, and had had been 
closed by their relations with the with the uh, with the Soviet Union, which is mostly true. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, having Westerners there, everybody very much you know wanted to being among the only Americans there was a was a big deal because there were a lot of smart young um, uh, people there, the young sort of English speakers that sort of thought of the the, Amer- the West as sort of one entity. Um, and I was the only, I was the easiest one to sort of get a hold of and talk to and meet with. Um, and so, and so I, you know, I got there and we had big plans. There was a, um, <laughs> the, the first event in which I became well-known was only a few months after I'd gotten there, there was a by-election in a district called Lagodeshi. The leader then, Shepard Nadze, had the Citizens Union Party, and, you know, the perennial question of Georgian politics is who is the real opposition to the to the governing party? And mm-hmm. there was a socialist party that was run by, I don't know, sort of a generic, kind of corrupt guy. They were having a... a violation there, and I thought, okay, I'll just go check it out. So I, I went there, and the whole thing got very complicated, and essentially the ruling party went to this one ethnic Azeri village, and they the, the, the socialists were going to win, which would have been a real dent in the reputation of the ruling party, and so they invalidated the, the polling station by sort of sending in some young thugs and kind of turning off the lights and grabbing some of the, the, the ballots, even though they'd been counted and they knew that the, that the ruling party had lost. This was the last station that had not returned. And I had guessed that that was going to happen. I'd observed a lot of elections at that point, and so I was sort of guarding, not guarding, but sort of standing right next to the ballots. And when the lights went off, I knew that someone was going to try and grab them to disappear with them to invalidate the station. And so, you know, I... I was holding them, and then somebody was pulling them away, and then the lights went off. And then, of course, they said, oh, okay, some of the ballots are gone. We have to invalidate the station. That means we win, which was kind of the case according to the election law. So then the head of the Socialist Party starts saying, well, you know, there was a, a, an American that was beat up. A for, you know, we're beating up foreigners, and here we are, supposedly this great hospitable nation, and we're abusing foreigners in order to, you know, promote political repression and all this sort of stuff. And I was not at all beat up. I mean, nobody had barely even been touched. But um, finally, after listening to all of these interviews about me, I I went on TV and said, I just said exactly what had happened. Mm -hmm. And and so that, that was, I mean, there were just not so many foreigners on TV that were that would say anything particularly interesting. This was very big national news, and there I was saying, here's what happened. Um, and from then on, I just ended up being in the news a lot and on television. Um, about a year after that. Sorry, go ahead. And, and so it's, it's quite interesting, you know, given our current political um uh, climate in the U.S. where people talk about election fraud, you've just described a real election fraud situation in comparison to whatever um, paranoia um, certain people have here about election fraud. And so uh, there was actually a fellow who tweeted something about um, pretended to be a post office worker destroying uh, ballots uh, that were uh, Republican, and he got quoted by uh, the Drudge Report and Rush Limbaugh, even though it was totally fake news, um, because people are just paranoid about anything like that here. But what you experienced was a true um, election fraud issue, and that's why you ended up on television, because you were sort of a star um, witness at the event and a foreigner. Um, and a foreigner, I mean, in a country where there's a lot, you know, politically polarized, as are many places. And, you know, I was viewed as sort of being independent in, in, in many in many ways. And, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, true, that's true what you say about, about voter fraud. I mean, there's there's a lot. I, I know I, I happen to have one of my few technical expertises about, about fraud, and there are many, many ways to do it. But, um, you know, one of – there's – you know what what people think about is fraud during 
the voting. And I, you know, I, the, there are those that that talk about voter fraud in American elections during the voting, and 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 that's in in reality, there's there's incredibly little of that in the United States, and not much of it around the world. Much more efficient is in preventing people to vote from voting, um, or disincentivizing them from voting, or intimidating candidates, or Afterwards, in terms of what you do with the count and how and how transparent you are and when can you can you establish facts on the ground before you release the detailed data and that and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, although election observers like to go to elections, you know, on election day and pretend that they're looking at something important, um, there's no way to be a serious election observer without l- l- looking over a long time series of the election. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I just what what it served to do was put me on national TV, and then right. after that, I ended up being on TV a lot more. Now, other things transpired. I mean, in about a year after that, parliamentary elections in 1999, I, I was working with an organization that had a parallel vote tabulation. Um, that it got a little bit complicated. Um, and I also have to say, as an employee of the National Democratic Institute, I, I, I think I was viewed as a little bit off the reservation. Um, you know, there were there were those that were not that excited that I was going on TV and shooting my mouth off about whatever I felt like. Now, I wasn't saying anything particularly aggressive or even particularly partisan, um, but, you know, I would... I would go on TV sometimes. If somebody would ask me, I'd be interviewed and say, "Here's what I think about about uh, you know the political um, situation." With I mean, keeping in mind that I'm, you know, I had to be careful in the sense that as a as a foreigner and particularly as an American, um, you know, it's it's not it's it can really backfire if if you're very partisan. On the other hand, if there's you, you couldn't be too polarizing. But but it goes back to what you said a little earlier that you were the easiest to get a hold of. And I'm getting the sense I don't know you very well, Mark, but I'm getting the sense that you're open and you're a positive person, and um, um, and you're and you're bold in the fact that you went on television and um, and and just spoke out. And that's probably. Given what you're saying, the NDI wasn't into that sort of thing. Most people were probably much more reserved. Well, I mean, they were, you know, you know, it was different. I mean, I think there were there were a lot of there were a lot of people, you know, there were those at the embassy, like the ambassador, who frankly was pretty pleased to have some American on TV saying what everybody was really thinking. There were others. Right, with, he, with, he didn't have to stick his neck out, right? You well, he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to stick his neck out anyway. Um, and right, and it course. was at least while I was there, it was it was always a he. Um, you know, he that's not what they do. And you know, they'll they'll speak in wildly general terms that even when they're accurately translated, which is rare, um, will mean almost nothing. Um, and so I was, you know, I was not, you know, Mr. Truth to Power, but I was. You know, I was saying things that regular people could could understand, and and uh, and I would I was you know, anywhere there were there are others that you know they'd be told one time that you know they couldn't speak on TV and that would be it, and I just didn't I didn't really worry about it that about it that much. I mean, I think at that point um, I had I was comfortable in my position in Georgia. I didn't I didn't think that they were really going to fire me. It's not like they mm-hmm. they ever told me if you go on TV one more time you'll be fired. <laughs> you know, it was, you know they didn't they didn't say that, but it was kind of you know one way or another. Um, you know, they it was in some ways the the, the organization was uh, disorganized, mm-hmm. but if you have a bunch of enthusiastic, knowledgeable people in a disorganized mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. Especially one that's you know seeks grants, the really mm-hmm. organized nonprofits tend to become organized in getting dispatching and administering grants, whereas the disorganized nonprofit organizations with good people tend to by mistake do a lot of good things and in some which ways is, that's where is, we were there which, which is the case where you where you were exactly i i would yeah i would I'd make that argument. 
respect because you, maybe because you have to be more entrepreneurial in it or you know, it's more of an entrepreneurial environment with, with disorganized and less regimented. You can just sort of do, try stuff. And if it works. Well, well yeah, and it, I mean, it got funny. I mean, towards moving towards the end of 2003, when it really became um, much more, uh, you know, the opposition split from the from the ruling party, and it became a much more intense situation. I mean, it, at the same time, there were more and more nonprofits. USAID opened up an office in '98. There became more nonprofits. There were more, you know, people working in not just you know humanitarian stuff and health stuff, but also in democratization and that sort of thing. Um, but I'd been there for a while, and one thing I noticed after I'd been there about four years was, you know, I'd be at some kind of reception, and people, Georgians, would come up to me and say, "Oh, you know, you're you're still here," and yeah, you know, I'd say, "Yeah, you know, I'm not." I'm not going anywhere, and uh, and it, you know foreigners why, go to places think- for well because foreigners go to places for two, two or three years. That's the amount of time that when you you go to the kind of place that doesn't have too many tourists but has the foreigners are actually working there usually in some kind of development or humanitarian assistance or something like that. Diplomats, everybody else, it's it's two to three years. You go there for more than that. You know, you start to go a little native and freak people out, and people want to go home and get married and, you know, get graduate degrees and, I don't know, just kind of, you know, get out of the pressure cooker or whatever. And I mm-hmm. I didn't want to. I had no interest in working at the headquarters. I didn't need to become the deputy regional director based in God knows where in suburban Washington. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I was, I was happy where I was. Um, mm-hmm. And so... These people would say, like, you're you're still here. I'd say, yeah, you know, I I am. And they'd say, well, uh, you know, let's get together sometime. Because, and what they mean is, you know, I've kind of been BSing you a little bit for the last four years. But now that I know you're sort of here to stay, I'll tell you what's really going on. And, uh, you know, the, so you the longer. Sort of getting in, inside scoop on everything. I mean, yeah, a little, a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ultimately, you know, what you said to me at, the, at that book swap is that you, many people in, in Georgia uh, feel, feel like, give you credit for helping to bring down Shepherd Nazi. And so how, how did you go from, so you, you were there for several years, and then you started getting um, a reputation for being trustable. And people started telling you the inside scoop. How did that, what happened next? You're on television and you're integrated into society. Where did it go from here? Well, then um, I think starting, there were elections, parliamentary elections at the end of of 2003. And, you know, the year before that, it, it became... You know, quite intense. The, 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 there was one serious unified opposition grew more or less. Um, there was very organized nonprofits. There was one opposition television station. Each of those groups were coordinating. Also, the the sort of the main uh, I don't know how to describe it, but the sort of out in front nonprofit that was all the kind of kind of hell raising university students. I mean, there's every transition will have a group like this, which is where if you're, you know, 21 years old and smart with plenty of lead in your pencil and you want to be a part of the action, you go to that group. And that group's office was just a block from my house. And so I, uh, my son had, um, had just been born. He was about a, a couple of years old and I would walk down with him in the evenings after dinner and the whole group, there'd be tons of people packed in their office, and we'd walk, watch the beginning of the sort of nightly news broadcast of the opposition-affiliated TV station, and the you know all the young people there would sort of play with my little kid, and then I would sort of talk to the leaders of that organization about what was going on, and um, and I'd get information from them, and they their nickname for me at that. <laughs> Point started to be the spokesman of the West because interesting 
you know, for Georgians, <clears throat> especially at that time, a little bit different now, but at, at that time, the difference between me, Mark Mullen, the head of the National Democratic Institute, the Secretary General of NATO, the French ambassador, um, you know, Dick Cheney, they're all kind of the Westerners, the foreigners that sort of began showing up in the 90s. And everybody sort of assumes they're on the same page, that they're more or less the same, that they all kind of hang out with each other and more or less have similar views. And there is some truth to that, certainly compared to what else they're used to, which is the Kremlin. Um, but, you know, I, I could go on TV and say, well, the West is very concerned with corruption in the Shevardnadze government related to XYZ, and that's why they're not doing this or that. That was all true, but nobody wanted to say that. The French ambassador didn't want to say it. The Secretary General of NATO didn't want to say it. Nobody wanted to say it, but I would say it because, you know, it's a nonprofit, and I didn't really care, and I didn't think I was going to get fired and didn't really care if I did, and, I, and, and it was true. And so, you know, there would be the, – the, the, the political opposition at that time had a, had a stake in me knowing what was going on um, and being well-informed so that I could speak about it in a, in a mild but accurate way, more so than, than anybody else who would go on TV. Because everybody else, all the other foreigners who would go on TV, it was just for some doofy ribbon-cutting ceremony or some training session and God knows what at the Marriott or whatever, you know. So, so, so basically, the, the, once they, you know, the, when the opposition party sort of became friendly with you, they knew that you could get on television and say whatever you wanted. And so, in, in a way, they, by informing you, they were helping to get their views on national television. Well, yes, except their views were already on national television, and they were much more in the media than I was. But mm -hmm. I was a Westerner in a tie right. that was right. sort of presumed to be, at least to some degree, the spokesperson of the West. Right. And so, and so, you know, um, while whereas, and, and you have to remember at this time, I mean that that sounds quite partisan, but at this time, the Shevardnadze government had no popular support. I mean, nobody other than his relatives or direct employees or people that he'd enriched supported him. Um, but and Nazi, to, to remind the audience, he was installed in the Republic of Georgia by was it Gorbachev? No, no, no. He had he had been the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, right, um, right, right. unusual for a non-ethnic Russian. Um, and uh, then uh, in '92, realized that it was sort of that non-ethnic Russians no longer had much of a place in Russia. That the, the the Soviet Union had broken up, and so. Georgia was a total mess that going through a war in, in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and he came back to be the president. And he he did actually stabilize the country, um, right? You know, up until ninety ninety five and, and through the ninety nine parliamentary elections. But then, just gradually, the country became much more corrupt. He didn't really take any money, but he just he, he stabilized the country by giving chunks of it to various interests, and it, it became just completely mired in corruption. I mean. Nobody could do anything. Everything was a payoff, and everyone knew that. And, and people just got sick of it. And so that's so there was no, you know, when I was when I was speaking, and I was talking about you know the corruption of, of the Shevardnadze um, government. Everybody knew that. All of the public, all of the foreigners, but none of the foreigners that would go on TV or be in the right time or the right place, or that the journalists had the mobile phone number of. None of them knew enough that they could speak accurately and realistically about pretty much whatever they were asked politically and would also be open. You know, diplomats wouldn't be open. The the nonprofits and everybody else, they were nervous about saying something. And so I just – I happened to be the one that would say that. So, so the, it's – I mean, it, you, you know, we talked earlier before we got on this call about, um, you know, helping others – uh, do what you did or shedding some light. And through talking about this, I'm, I'm starting to see the pattern, right? You become the go-to guy and the foreign, foreign spokesperson who's well-informed 
and suddenly you're allowed to say what no one else can say. Well, I mean, it's, the question is who is doing the allowing. I mean, the Georgians, you know, they don't care who says what. I mean, I think as it turns out, I mean, I, I spoke in such a way, and there, there were some, some threats to me, um, mm-hmm. but I essentially decided that if I paid attention to that, especially having kids that I, you know, I couldn't, I'd, I'd have to leave. And I decided that they were probably bluffing, which turned out to be the case. Um, but, and they were not, you know, I wouldn't say that they were very serious. Now, obviously there's, you know, there's security situations, um, that, you know, you can, what, you know, what you say on TV as a foreigner could, could get you killed or, or, you know, thrown in jail or whatever else, um, in, in many different places. At this time, we're going, and you weren't going too far, right? I mean, you were, you, you were only telling stuff that, you saying stuff that was essentially true. And, and yeah, I mean, what I was saying was true, and I was not, you know, I wasn't saying it as an actor. I wasn't, I wasn't telling the population to do anything, and I, everything that I was saying was stuff that the entire international community was did indeed believe and, and, and was saying. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and I think so. Again, it was in a lot of ways it was just the right time and the right place, but. Um, but also, it just happened to be a place where no, I, I got there when nobody was paying attention. And right. by the time people were paying attention, I'd been there a long time. I knew a lot of people, and I, I, knew, I knew what was going on. I, I understood where, you know, people could bring up a name, and I, you know, I, I knew. I mean, <laughs> I remember soon after getting to Georgia, somebody told me, Georgian politics are just like American politics. If everybody in American politics had gone to high school with each other, and uh, because it's such a small country, okay. it's just a kind of, it's a small place, and I I kind of knew where everything was, and I think one thing that was sort of difficult for foreigners, and one of the, you know, it's not just that foreigners didn't talk, didn't go on TV, or didn't publicize their views um, out of you know fear of losing their jobs or something like that. Also, it was a very reasonable feeling that they just didn't know what was going on that well. That there's two too much, um, you know, there, it's, it's more complicated than they can know in the year two or three in which they're, which they're there. And I'm, so that's, you know, so that's another pattern. So the other rule to, to help make a change in a country and become well-known is you got to stay there for a while to actually yeah. get, really know what's going on. It's not a superficial action. So if you're going to do a tour of duty in a small country and you're going to go for two years, which is typical, I'm sure, it's not, you're not going to have the impact that you would have if you did what you did, which is stay for a decade? How yeah, I, I mean, all, all told I was there about 15 years. But I, was, I sort of hit the zenith of my fame around when, when the changes happened after I'd been there about seven years. Um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in 2003 and four. So, um, yeah, and I think, I mean, the other unusual thing about Georgia was there was an actual peaceful democratic transition, and there's lots mm-hmm. of other places and lots of other people that stay in places for a long time, and there's just not a transition. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that was kind of, <laughs> it was a little funny about my fame is that, so... What really happened in, in the, the, the resignation of Shepard Nazi in, in November 23rd of, of uh, 2003, or called the, mm-hmm. the Rose Revolution sometimes, is people got sick of a corrupt government, and they demonstrated relentlessly. Luckily, the dictator didn't have a whole lot of money himself, and he just sort of let go rather than a situation mm-hmm. like with Mugabe where he's surrounded by people say, if you, you know, you try and take off to Malaysia, we'll kill you. Um, Shepard Nadze just sort of let go, and it, and it worked. And the next day, you know, the morning of November 24th, you know, the streets were clean, and it was a sunny day, and everybody was smiling, and it was calm, and, and, pe- and people were, you know, incredibly happy that um, the people had persuaded um, – a corrupt head of state to let go of power. 
people were positive about the new young team that was, was showing up. And most importantly, nobody's gotten hurt. It hadn't turned to violence as it, as it does so many other places, and it seems to always happen in Georgian history. So people were just, you know, incredibly excited about that. But that was a real problem for Georgia's neighbors, for people like Putin and Aliyev and Azerbaijan and all of the Central Asian dictators and everywhere else. The idea of a successful, peaceful, popular change in government with demonstrations is impossible to conceive of, and even if you could conceive of it, incredibly dangerous. So they had to sort of narrate this as some conspiracy of the CIA and George Soros and, you know, the Masons and the Kabbalists and the Jesuits, and I don't even know who. You know, that it has to be a conspiracy right. somehow. And and Mark Mullen somehow was involved in that. <laughs> of course, of course. And it's funny, actually, like the the day before the revolution, the the, uh, the ambassador called me and said, like, you know, could you come in and you know chat stuff like that? <laughs> he said, look, we're starting to hear a lot of chatter, which means you know access to channels of communication I don't have access to. You know, trying to figure out who you are because it seems like anytime anything happens, you're sort of you've got your back to the camera, like on your mobile phone, looking out the window, and it's starting to freak everybody out. So, if you see any cameras around, could you just sort of just kind of peel around the corner? <laughs> and I said, okay, sure, fine, no problem. And um, but so what happened was, I think for people, especially in small countries. The idea that they, that, you know, countries that had, in reality, I mean, they don't say it, but been a colony for 200 years, mm-hmm. it's hard for them to really understand the meaning of independence and that they themselves are in control. And so you've got, you know, Putin, you've got others, and, you know, people, you know, just chatting around in the streets. Mm-hmm saying that there was there was a conspiracy and there was something and some different people and whatever. And I was sort of, look, I looked like the sort of front of the American conspiracy to be involved in this. And, you know, frankly, that's kind of flattering. You know, it's kind of, I, when I, you know, I mean, when I come into, a lot of times it'll happen that, you know, who talks more than the drivers hanging around at the, uh, at airports to, to do pickups, and when I come into the Tbilisi airport, and there'll be a couple of, of uh, drivers sitting there chatting. Whenever I walk past, they'll say, "That's the guy who got rid of Trevor Nutzen," which, you know, in reality, I'm not, and I think very few people really, really think that. You know, even those who remember who I am, although I get recognized, you know, I mean, people recognize me in Tbilisi, but even in San Francisco, Georgians have walked past me and said, you know, something, but. <laughs> I think that there's kind of a um, there's a feeling that there should be a you know a hidden story, some hidden thing, and they're always kind of looking for who who that would be. Um, and uh, and so I and so you, I and you, you, you fill you you fill that you fill that classic role of there needs to be someone who there needs to be a a, a conspiracy linchpin, and you were that. Yeah, I mean, for for a lot of people. I mean, in reality, I wasn't. I mean, I was... No, no, I... I you know, I, I was it. in the, the, the people... I was just sort of the right right time, right place. I was kind of running around from room to room. It was all very exciting, and I... You know, like, I remember one time the night about... Before the international media got there, I don't know, I guess it was about maybe four days before, the very first person who got there was some guy who was seeing an international... And he was broadcasting right on the main drag, uh, about two blocks below my house. I didn't have a TV, but I was watching at a uh, at a at a bar across the street, and I could see where he was broadcasting from. And there were demonstrations, but he didn't know why there were demonstrations. Beautiful mountainous land, riven by ethnic hatreds, like you know. But, but Mark, I, Mark, I, I just I just lost you for uh, about ten seconds. So could you go back to where um, you, you you were sitting in the bar and. Right, so I'm I'm sitting in a in a bar watching a guy broadcasting. That's the first international news to come out before the revolution. He's the only international journalist there, you know. And if something big and important happens, and there's not international television there, it didn't happen. But he's there, and he's broadcasting live with kind of some demonstrators, not not big numbers, but a, a few sort of on the street in front of him with signs saying stuff, all in Georgian, and he doesn't understand what they're saying. 
and he's saying that there's that this he's saying what all journalists say who have no idea what's going on, which is oh, in this beautiful, ancient, tiny, isolated country riven by ancient feuds, you know, there's been a political upheaval, and you know, I don't know, he doesn't know what's happening. In fact, what had just happened was that the election commission had just seated a parliament that was after two weeks after the election that was not the parliament that people had voted for, and there were demonstrations specifically about that. And so I just went down, I mean, I, I walked a block and a half and said, here's why this is happening. And then he said, okay, well, you, I mean, I didn't, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever been on real international TV before, but I, I just sort of told him his background. I was in a t-shirt and, and then he said, well, will you go on? And I said, yeah, okay. So I, then I, then I went on and, uh, and, and just, and, and said what was going on. And then the next time I had anything to do with any TV was after the revolution, after Shepard Nadze had resigned, um, the the Speaker of Parliament became president, and she was really nervous and not didn't know what to do and had no idea what to do. I mean, what? And she was a lawyer, so she was kind of like hanging out with the lawyers who were trying to figure out how to legalize the revolution. And I told her, you know, look, you know, you need to you need to go get on TV now and say everything's fine, everything's calm. You know, this is the triumph of democracy, and we're looking forward to you know greater and greater heights and everything's fine now. And, and is uh, that what she did? That's exactly what she did. Yeah, she had she wanted a I don't know, she couldn't find any hairspray and she needed she was very worried about her hair. But she had we had some people out run around nobody could find any hairspray in the parlor. But yeah, she got some hairspray and went up there and just gave the everything is fine now interview and we're all very happy and kinda cementing the you know, the deal and and uh yeah, it worked. Just just by declaring it on television. <laughs> yeah, well, declaring it on television in English. Um right. you know, you needed to have an, an English speaker who right. who could be right. calm and speak and say, you know, what because you know, um I you know, I, I say with air quotes, foreigners on T V you know, tend to be aggressive. They to get on. You know, you want good footage, and you want the the nutcases and the oddballs and the wackos and whatever. And, and to have a a, a a when there's upheaval, and then as soon as Shepard Nadze um, resigned, that there was just like crazy jubilation, like I've never seen before or since. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, to have Somebody calm, say in English, okay, so now we're going to, you know, move forward, and thank you very much, and, you know, we look forward to our partnership with all our partners, and to say nothing but calmly is a is a very, very important thing to do, to have um, a political leader in the midst of a revolution be able to say that after the moment of transfer of power. Right. So, so you know, we've been, this has been a great call, but... For for anyone listening, who would who? It, it seems impossible to to know you want to aid a revolution, like a priori. To know, like, I'm going to move. To, I'm going to find some small country, live there for ten years, and be the person who all the journalists want to call, and the opposition party wants to inform, and be able to whisper in the ear of the speaker who becomes president after the revolution. Like, you could never have predicted this by distributing food in Malawi. Like, there's my career path all the way to, to be. <laughs> but what would be, what would be your advice to people who want to help make democratic change in the world? Like, what should they do? You, you know, I, I want to go live in some country and help make democratic change, or I'm living in some country and I want to do that. What, what's your advice? Um, Given your experience, well, um, you know the 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 ways to um, promote political change in general is um, to is the way you do anything, which is a, a little bit every day. Um, you know, you can't just get excited for a short period of time. You need a 
you need to work, you need to learn, you need to listen, you need to figure out where you can contribute, you need to bring people along with you and do a little bit every day. And that's that's how it's done anywhere. Mm-hmm. For people that want to, you know, that are interested in being involved in something like this, the first thing I say is that you know, Americans have very poor understanding about the danger of the rest of the world. We're usually geographically isolated in in the United States. And um, I think people have a tendency to think of the rest of the world or a lot of it if they if it's poor or far away and compared to us practically everything is, then it's somehow dangerous. And there are some extremely dangerous places in the world, but not many. I mean, there's, you know, there's, I, I don't know, maybe six or eight places or Parts of countries you know, El- that I would right. I would not go. Right, El Salvador right now is incredibly dangerous, but you know, maybe I, I don't maybe. I don't know I don't know enough to know. So, um, you know, so I think um, first of all, like don't you know don't don't believe what you hear on the street in the United States, and you know, and, and figure that out on your own. The second thing I'd say is, um, in, I'm, I'm speaking mainly to people in their in their twenties, right. um, you know, who are or 30s, but especially 20s. Um, when you go to a country, get out of the capital. And if possible, go there and live in a village for a while. Mm-hmm. Live in a, a small town or a village or something like that. Um, do everything you can to pick up the language. And and have build connections in a particular place that's not the capital. And it's just a better way to go about understanding a place and you understand what it's like outside of the center of power first, and then you go to the uh, to the to the capital. I know when I was at uh, at NDI in Georgia, I I would always leave every week and stay a night out somewhere, and I went everywhere in the country. Um, and that's you know what I really would have loved. I didn't actually like live in a village for for several months until. I'd been there about uh, about four years, but I would have understood the place better, more, and and faster if I'd uh, if I'd done that early on. Um, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. and then the, the, they, 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 they say that someone who's living in San Francisco is more similar to someone living in Tokyo or someone living in Paris than someone who's living in Perpignan is to someone living in Paris. Like capital culture. Um, cosmopolitan culture is similar across the planet, but the particularities of a culture stay more traditional in villages and little towns and so forth. I've experienced that myself. So yeah, that, that's that. true. And, and also, I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with just sort of global tourism and, and, and that sort of thing. Is that in any capital in any country in the world, um, there are a lot of English speakers, and there's you know there's German and Australian backpackers. There's backpackers from from Oklahoma and from Italy, and 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 it's and everybody sort of hangs out in in very sort of similar cheap bars, and it's 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 seductive and fascinating, particularly when you have a bunch of backpackers and hippies from from Iran and from from Iraq and and Russia mm-hmm. and 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 Uzbekistan and in the same place and that's incredibly fun and it's great but it doesn't necessarily have a whole lot to do with the country you're in and so yeah. if you can it's go to a place culture, right? right and so if you go to go to a place where um, you know there are not any other foreigners and you can hang out there and I don't know, it'll be cheap and you can figure out what's going on and, you know, and spend some time there and, I don't know, figure out something useful to do with yourself, including studying the language. Um, it'll give you connections in that, that area. The Peace Corps is fantastic for that, but you don't have to go to the Peace Corps. I mean, you need to do that sort of thing on your own. Um, and then I would say when you want to, you know, once you, you know the language and you've, you've, you've got some connections in, in that regional area, you've traveled around, um, and you come to the capital, um, hit your wagon to someone, and someone from that country, somebody who's doing something interesting. It can be a politician, or it can be an organization that's doing something good. Have help them. It's all you know. Having 
you know, any technical skill is useful, but English is, is, is always a very useful technical skill and just, um, you know, help them, help them out and figure out what, and it's not that different from affecting political change in, uh, um, you know, in the United States or anywhere else, that if you're, you know, if you're, if you're just doing everything, that's less useful than focusing on one particular issue and one or a, a group of particular representatives and going at, the, at them over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you can, you know, you can look around like what if you, I mean, you know, choose, choose a country that looks like it's, it's going through some transition that has something going on. I mean, I would say like right now, Iran is an incredibly interesting country to go. And if I was in my twenties, that's where I'd go. Um, mm. b- because it's a, it's just a, a, a really fascinating, interesting place and learn Farsi, which is not the hardest language, not the easiest, but not the hardest. And it's, and it's just a, you know, great, a really interesting spot. Um, or, you know, lots of other, lots of other countries where a lot of, you know, a lot of Africa that you don't, you don't hear about in the, uh, in, in the news. It's really fascinating. Senegal, of course, and, and, uh, and, and Ghana and places like that. And so, um, go there and then, you know, get to be friends with, you know, the, 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 well, not in Iran, but, you know, in Senegal, you know, find somebody, a mid-level position at the Ministry of Finance or whatever you majored in and, 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 and help, Help him or her out, and see see how you can can be involved in that, or find someone in a you know in an opposition party or whatever else. You can uh, see what you can do there. Yeah, and I, yeah. if you if you're willing if you're willing to stick around for a while, um, yep. you'd be amazed what can happen. Yep, yep. If you're willing to spend five, ten years, really get to know the place, work hard, help out, learn the language, you can affect change around the world. True. Yeah. Well, Mark, that's a very inspiring story. Um, I especially like the hairspray anecdote. It's you know, <laughs> totally unexpected. But, you know, that, that I think shines a light on how um, the word quotidian comes to mind, but how just normal um, these politicians are, and they're just real people, and um you know, and like reporters need news to report. So if you're the guy they can call and you're informed, they'll call you and you sort of build your power in a way to be a television personality. You, you end up known by Georgians. And then when you're walking down the street in San Francisco or New York and a Georgian sees you, they're like, hey, there's that guy. <laughs> Fantastic. It's true. It hasn't happened too many times in San Francisco, but it has happened a few. And it's always very nice when it happens. Well, thank you very much, Mark. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the book at makeyoufamous.co. 